Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We have a super cool episode for you today. We're going to be focusing on robotic surgery and digital surgery. We're talking with two of the leaders in this space. First, I will speak with Robert Crawl. Robert is the Vice President and General Manager of Connected Health at Zimmer Biomet. We'll, of course, go over his path into MedTech. We're going to talk about a lot of the work that Zimmer Biomet is doing in Connected Health, including things like its smart implants, which we'll talk about at Device Talks West coming up in uh, just a couple of weeks, October 19th and 20th in Santa Clara. We'll have Zimmer Biomet's Leanne Toplitsky there along with Bill Hunter, the founder of Canary Medical, the creator of the sensor that's used in the implant. Anyway, I spoke with Robert about uh, uh, Zimmer's work in Connected Health, about how it's uh, putting things together and about a new arrangement it has with the hospital for special surgery. After that, we'll have an interview that I did with Adam Sachs, which was super fun. We actually did the interview a few weeks ago on our Device Talks Tuesday platform. So maybe some of you have already heard it. Maybe you, maybe some of you uh, were sitting in on it. Uh, but uh, Adam and I connected about a lot of different topics. We uh, got to talk about Vicarious's approach. Uh, we took questions from the audience throughout, which was cool. So I got to ask some specific design questions that uh, I wasn't sure how it would actually work when I heard it as a podcast, whether it would sound uh, distracting. But it didn't. It was really neat to have people sort of chime in with their questions uh, as I was interviewing Adam. So uh, we'll definitely be doing that again because that was a lot of fun. And we'll uh, similarly talk about an arrangement that Vicarious has uh, with two healthcare groups. So uh, lots to talk about in the surgery robotic space, or rather the surgical robotic space. Uh, but it, we did talk a lot of tech, but we talked a lot about sort of where the model is going. So uh Great couple of interviews coming your way. And of course, we'll have Chris Newmarker with Newmarker's Newsmakers as well. I referenced a little bit earlier that we have Device Talks West happening in just a few weeks. So uh, please do plan on attending. It'll be happening October 19th and 20th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. If you'd like to attend and want to save yourself some money, use the code DTWEEKLY. 25. That's DT Weekly 25, all caps, and you'll save yourself 25% off the cost. So before we begin this episode, I would like to bring in a message from our sponsor, Sertronics. I'm speaking with Tom Farron. Tom is Chief Revenue Officer at Sertronics. Tom, tell us about Sertronics. Sertronics is a contract manufacturer of complex electromechanical assemblies. So we're an integrator we build from the ground up PCBs, subassemblies, uh, full integrated systems for the medical industry, medical device industry. Uh, we're about 43 years old, 200 strong. And we've been working in the medical device industry now for 25 plus years in very diverse markets with household names that you'd probably know for systems that will have been used in hospitals, facilities, um, dermatology, et cetera. So uh, we span a lot of markets. We build things that have lasers and optics in them. The more complex, the more regulated, uh, the better we are. So um, we are an FDA and uh, 13485 company. So the one thing I think that's important is we're a company that ramps. So if you're an OEM and you've got your prototypes done, you've got your documentation all ready, then we are the ones who will help you ramp. 
All right, we'll hear more from Tom Farron a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more information about Sertronics right now, go to its website, sertronics.com. That's C-I-R-T-R-O-N-I-C-S dot com. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Marker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. I understand you've got uh, two great fall days there in Minnesota. Yes, I think we're in the middle of our two-week autumn season <laughs> between heat and cold. I'll be there in early November. Do you think you can hold on to those fine temps until I get there? Uh, lucky if they're. I think. I think it was like two years ago we had a snowstorm before Halloween. So we'll, we'll see, man. <laughs> Fantastic. Could be, nice, could be snowy. We'll see. Fantastic. I bought me a new winter Cody. I'll, maybe I'll bring that along just in case. Bring built character, Tom. It builds character. Yeah, uh, that's what I hear. You do you are a character. I mean, you have character. You certainly have yeah, character. This, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'm not a character, but yeah. No, I slipped. I tried to slip that A character. <laughs> but you're so darn nice. Oh, I couldn't even I couldn't be snarky. Good golly. Oh, thanks, man. You know, I heard we have an event coming up in, in just two weeks. Time that's, flies by. That's a great lead. And yeah, it's a little over two weeks. It's October yeah, 19th little, and 20th. We'll have yeah. uh, Device Talks West. I know you and I just had a conversation with Celine Martin of Johnson Johnson. She'll be one of our, our keynotes, along with Gary yeah. Guthard of Intuitive. We have lots of other great ones, including uh, Brett Wall of Medtronic and Gio Nadapoli of Medtronic. Leslie Trigg of Medical. Medical yeah. Deb Kilpatrick of Evidation. So uh, lots going on. Folks, the as lineup I mentioned. is amazing. It is. It's stellar. And we would just love to see everyone who's listening to this podcast at Device Talks West. So uh, as I mentioned at the top, go to uh, west.devicetalks.com or devicetalks.com and uh, make sure you register. We'd love to see you there. Hey, you know, if you're one of our connections, you know, or you want to be on in the inside crowd on uh, on Device Talks, you know, like ping, uh, ping me or Tom, you know, because we could hook you up we got a few uh few discounts <laughs> yes we do we are totally plugged we in. take care of our friends that's right, right. Yeah, take care that's of our right friends. i did i did drop a code in in the message but we might have a secret code if folks want to uh, reach out directly to us on linkedin yeah but i uh, know things are moving along excited to to be in uh the same room with everybody excited to get the uh the med tech leaders together uh for a fun conversation so uh, or fun, two days of fun conversations plural uh, it won't be one continuous conversation because that would be exhausting to talk for two straight days. Yes. Yeah. So it'd be a lot like some of our intros. I'd lose my voice. I'd be like, <laughs> it seemed to go on forever. Be ending it like, like, hi, Tom. <laughs> well, I guess we got to place talks West done. But yes, yeah, folks <laughs> should be joining us there. But right now we're here to uh, roll out this week's. The new markers, newsmakers. There they are. We got some big yeah, names this week. Yes. And it uh, seems like a lot of, uh, Orthopedic and orthopedic related uh, industries or news, at least the first two. So, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's start with. Well, I always is spine ortho. I always think it is, but I mean, I know I, it's. How I do think you it's do a that, subgroup in, in ortho. Yeah, uh, that's the way I treat spine. It's kind of a subgroup. I mean, they're bones, right? It's no. definitely ortho adjacent. It is. And it's not. I guess. I mean, you're dealing with yeah, vertebra, but also with the nervous muscle, system. So, yeah, cell, muscle. Yeah. So, all right, well, we'll yeah. it's ortho adjacent. It's ortho adjacent. So what is number five? It's kind of a, on nice, the- 
it's kind of a nice corrective, I'd say, because we had all this coverage just like a week ago from TCT. So Massive Ice was feeling very cardio heavy. So it's mm-hmm. nice, uh, kind of refreshing that we got some ortho news this week. So, you know, yeah, we got to got to cover all parts of the, this industry here and some and some ophthalmological. Uh, gosh, I hope I pronounced that right. Off, off, <laughs> ophthalmological. Stuff with eye, eye care devices. Eye yeah. stuff. Yes. Eye ophthalmological. Stuff. We, we have big stuff, Tom. We have the all the O's, orthopedics, ophthalmology. Let's go into news markers, newsmakers, number five. You know, number five, we got Stryker launching their Q guidance system for uh, spine surgery. Uh, it, it got cleared uh, earlier this year for you know, use in, devi- in adults as well as, uh, you know, uh, you know, teenagers 13 and up. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it combines new optical tracking options. Um, it's got a redesigned camera. You know, it's got, uh, you know, it also includes like some sophisticated algorithms from uh, the newly launched uh, spine guidance so- software. So, I mean, the, the whole idea is more surgical planning and navigation, you know, capability uh, than, you know, ever before. So, I mean, just... You know, this has been a, a big trend, like just getting ever more sophisticated, uh, you know, sort of a surgical navigation systems, you know, in, uh, in this space. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more, you know, robots as well. Like Striker's really big with it. Mako robots. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah. So just another nice, uh, nice development out of Striker. And we got some comments from Robbie Robinson, who took over fairly recently as president of Striker's spine division. We'll have him on a Striker Talks podcast in the very near future and uh yeah no, no strikers uh, certainly making some some great moves in the space and before anyone calls us on it chris you said teenagers 13 and up i think we could we could say that all teenagers are 13 and up so we acknowledge that you, know, you, you try doing a podcast it's not available. easy to get every word right you know sometimes you trip over stuff i know i know it's the news release language was children 13 and up, but I probably most, uh, <laughs> you 13 had patients 13 and up. Most teens would not want to be called children. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to insult any teenagers who are listening to the device talks weekly podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Both I hope we have them. teenagers. That'd be great. I do too. If you are a teenager and you want to go to device talks West, ask your mom and dad, and then ask us <laughs> for a code. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but please check with mom and dad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> number four on the new markers newsmakers. Wow. Well, you know, number four, we got Smith and Nephew announcing <laughs> their uh, first uh, first clinical uh, use of uh, of uh, their uh, revision knee system with their. Uh, we don't do birthday parties at, at Device Talks, but sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then we got we got like. <laughs> we should oh, probably. Boy. Take that one from the top. What's number four on the new market newsmakers? <laughs> number four on the list. We got uh, Smith and Nephew uh, announcing the, the first cases for uh, revision knee replacement using their uh, Corey surgical handheld robotic uh, system. So it's, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, Duke University uh, surgeon performed the first cases uh, just in August. And uh, it was a combo of SNN's handheld Corey system with the uh, Legion revision knee system. Um, so it's uh, so yeah, just even more uses for uh, you know for uh, Smith and Nephew's you know robotic uh, surgery system in the in the ortho space. You know, yeah, the this, competition's heating up. This was the one uh, robotic surgical system I've actually used. I used it at a conference. Uh, I guess it was probably AAO. AAO. ALS got a little bit of knee, knee cleaned up there when it was when it was blue belts <laughs> when before Smith and nephew bought it and you could you could use it and it was cool it's like little handheld thing and it kind of kept yeah. you within the field and yeah so good it's good to see that uh 
getting more applications. Good to see it being used on, on revisions uh, when yeah, they're necessary. Smith and nephew acquired it. You know, they they made it. Uh, they made everything a lot smaller and more sleek, and yep. you know, they've made a lot of improvements to it. So very cool. Very cool. All right. Now it's time to hear my interview with Rob Crawl. Rob is vice president and general manager of Connected Health at Zimmer Biomet. But first, let's hear a message from our sponsor, Sertronics. Once again, I'm speaking with Tom Farron. Tom is chief revenue officer at Sertronics. Tom, you gave us a great overview at the start. Could you uh, tell me a little bit more about what stage of company does Sertronics work with? What, when does Sertronics add the most value? Uh, that's a great question because we're very specific in kind of where we jump in in the product life cycle. We are distinctly not a prototype company. We are not one that is trying to launch brand new products. We jump in when the prototypes are done, the documentation has come together, and the orders are coming in. And now what? How do we ramp? How do we get more and more of these out into the marketplace? That's where Sertronics steps in. That's where we specialize. So when you start to grow, we can grow with you. We're not looking to do 100,000 of anything. Even 10,000 is a, is a high number for complex integrated systems. So when it's low to medium volume and the ramp is coming and you need somebody to hold your hand and take you out into the marketplace, high touch, lots of customer service, processing ECOs as they come along, that's where we jump into the game and specialize. All right, that's great. We'll hear more from Tom Farron a little later in the podcast. Once again, if you want to find out more about Sertronics, go to sertronics.com. Well, uh, Rob Crow, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Good to be with you. I'm anxious to learn more about uh, Zimmer Biomet's agreement with uh, HSS, but uh, it's always great to understand uh, our guests' path to uh, to where they are today. Uh, Rob, how did you find your way into the uh, into the medtech industry? Well, Tom, it's it's, it's a pretty long and windy road. Uh, <laughs> I started out actually. Uh, my first ten years of my career was spent as a clinician. I was an RN in the pediatric ICU, so that's where I started. My last clinical job, I managed the pediatric ICU and interventional cardiology departments at UCSF in San Francisco, and then found my way from there uh, into med tech. And I have done a variety of different roles. I have I've sold device, I've led sales organizations. I've started a small med tech company, sold that company, and invested in a tech startup here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that was later sold to Zimmer Biomet, and that's what brings me to Zimmer Biomet today. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, what was it that drew you to uh, your initial career being an RN, I imagine, patient care? Yeah, it, it really was. It really was patient care. Uh, and I did, through my rotations, I found that pediatric ICU was something that really interested me. It's an area that uh, one is intense uh, with a great mission, right, that we, we dealt with with kids that were that that needed a lot of care, we focused largely on congenital heart disease uh, surgery at UCSF, and it was a really really rewarding path dealing with kids that largely did well. And ninety seven percent of the outcomes were really positive. It had a really a, a large effect on my life and my career going forward. What convinced you to uh, to leave that path from where one on the business side of things? 
Yeah, I often ask myself that question, Tom. I think, um, I, think I, I, came, I came to the realization that for my career to grow, I was going to probably move further and further away from the bedside. Yeah. Uh, and I found that through med device and med tech, I would have this, this ability to influence a large amount of, of patients through innovation. Makes a lot of sense. And it's a familiar path. So let's talk about your role currently now at Zimmer Biomed. As you, as we've talked about, your vice president, general manager of Connected Health. Zimmer Biomed's been uh, making a lot of news and uh, recently regarding ZB Edge and its use of data and sensors and its deal with Canary Medical. So a lot of exciting things happening there. As vice president and general manager of Connected Health at Zimmer Biomed, what are your uh, responsibilities? The way I describe the role, Tom, is in Connected Health, we sit in a larger BU called Technology and Data Solutions, but Connected Health is really responsible for these digital development or, or development of digital tools that connect patients to surgeons uh, through tools like My Mobility with Apple Watch and the deal that we, we signed with Apple, uh, Ortho Intel, the collection of that data and the display of the data back to the surgeon as well as the connection of the devices inside of our ecosystem that we call ZB Edge. So the connection of robotics in a, in a ROSA platform, Persona IQ connecting the data collected from the smart implant to healthcare data that's collected through, through my mobility. So we have this, this really rich ability to collect data across a patient's entire continuum of care. And then to make sense of that data, through insights. We have a data science team based out of the UK that reports into me as well. So, so we're responsible for the, for the connection of those things and the insights that are generated as a result of that. I'm sure there's a multiple answers to this question, but where is the data going and who is using the data? Is it primarily uh, are the internal tools for your own analysis? Are they external or used clinically by the folks using your, your implants, uh, a mix of both? Yeah, largely for the purpose of insight generation for our clinicians. Obviously, data generated and displayed back to the patient is used by the patient. Uh, but then data collection and aggregation for the purposes of creating those clinical insights are for the, for the clinical teams that we serve. So when we look at that data collection, looking at insight generation, we launched a product called Walk AI. So it's the first predictive product that looks at patient movement postoperatively and can view the patient's walking speed between postoperative day 15 and postoperative day 40 and give the surgeon some view into the future. It can now start to predict that patient's walking speed at postoperative day 90. So so this is, this is absolutely new in our field to mm -hmm. take real-world data collected from patients and start to predict if they're on or off course sometime into the future. So it's a, it's a really, really good, it's been viewed very positively by the clinicians that are using it today. Fantastic. So that success has obviously led to uh, the agreement or the, or the announcement regarding your well three-year agreement with H to create HSS Zimmer Biomet Innovation Center for Artificial Intelligence and Robotic Joint Replacement. That's a lot, but it's an important, uh, an important project. So Zimmer Biomet's working with the Hospital for Special Surgery to create sort of a, is it, uh, what will the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Robotic Joint Replacement uh, be responsible for? 
Yeah, it, it's sort of a mouthful, isn't it? I thought I could get it all out. I'm like, this is okay, but it, it but it's but it's there's a lot to talk about. It's very descriptive. So go ahead. Yeah, and we're really excited about it. It's our second deal that we've done with HSS. The first one, if you remember, was to to create standardized care pathways that are HSS care pathways and author those care pathways into our platform, into My Mobility with Apple Watch. So we look at at a center like HSS who has expertise in the orthopedic field and to take what they're doing and doing really well, and that is educating their patients pre and post-operatively, giving them the right exercise content, taking those HSS care pathways and then putting them in our digital assets and making them available beyond HSS so we can now deliver HSS care pathways to a broader audience. Um, So that was our first deal that we did with them. This second deal around um, artificial intelligence and joint replacement is really seeking to discover discoveries with this ability to collect data across this care continuum. So our ability to collect data pre and post-operatively with my mobility with Apple Watch, this ability to collect data interoperatively with robotics, and join with HSS and seek to uncover some of the stubborn problems in orthopedics. How exactly to balance a knee, how to place a component, kinematic versus anatomic alignment, trying to solve some of those through data and using that to build models around what exactly is the best final knee state for any given initial knee state. That's that's sort of the aspirational view of what we're trying to do together. We're working together on that with the HSS team as well as the Zimmer Biomet Connected Health team, our clinical teams, as well as our data science teams in the in the UK. So what does this agreement actually uh, entail? Is it just a sharing of information? Talk a bit about the components of, of the agreement. Yeah, the, the spirit of the agreement is to really uncover those problems that we'd like to solve with data collection and analysis. So meeting with HSS surgeons, with our our steering committees to to really uncover those, again, those stubborn problems that we think that we can solve with data and then creating a hypothesis that we think that we can solve, um, taking that back, data collecting across this group of patients, um, again, pre, post, and intraoperatively, and then solving for that through, through data analysis, allowing our data science team to model the data in a way that could potentially create some insight. So what, what are some of those problems? What's the, the number one or number two problem you're hoping to, to address? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I, th- I think we recognize in orthopedics, in, in knee surgery in particular, that it's an elective procedure with great outcomes, yet 20% of the patients report that they're dissatisfied with the outcome. Uh, and I'm not sure we completely understand why whether that is component placement, ligament balancing, as as we said, and what exactly is the ideal final knee state for any, again, any given initial knee state. So looking at this ability to really measure things intraoperatively, and robotic surgery has really allowed for this. Uh, In the past, it was was, the surgeon um, really looking at a feel intraoperatively, and we're now able to measure things intraoperatively that we just weren't able to do in the past. Mm-hmm. And through that measurement and this ability to then measure functional outcomes, how quickly are those patients returning to function? Is that function impaired? 
And our launch of Persona IQ gives us this ability now with data collection coming directly off of the implant to connect Persona IQ data directly across that care continuum and start to uncover signals in that data that, again, may lead to insight. That's that's the sort of aspirational view of what we're trying to do together. Well, we'll be talking about Persona IQ and uh, Canary Medical at Device Talks West uh, in October. Early on, what sort of sense are you getting from the data that you're receiving from Persona IQ from folks who have had the implant? Is it are are you seeing data that perhaps you weren't aware of that are that are unveiling things that you weren't aware of before in terms of how people are are walking with it or 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 their mobility? Anything early on that uh, you've been able to pull from the sensors? Yeah, I, I think what we're talking about publicly is there is data generation that's coming from the sensor that is giving us a real signal around understanding, you know, gate dynamics in in a different way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can point very clearly to recovery curves, looking at at Persona IQ. And I think that's become very helpful to surgeons. We'll we'll eventually launch recovery curves into the platform so surgeons at a glance can see if their patients are on or off track, which I think is very helpful so that they can now identify those patients who potentially are problematic and either bring them back into the office earlier or just encourage them to do something differently earlier in their postoperative course before it becomes problematic. And what is HSS's role in this agreement? Are they simply a, a place where the, the where Zimmer Biomet uh, systems and devices can be implanted, or are they going to take a role in data collection as well? What does the data collection part of this look like per this agreement? Well, first of all, they're HSS. So they, they come with, with a really, really big name. And the fact that they are recognized as one of the global leaders in orthopedic is something to recognize for us. Uh, we're really proud to be associated with them in that sense. So I think having having their clinical team also look at and give us perspective on some of those problems to solve is useful for us so that we can give we can give them some look at data collection. So where where our data is is present, what sort of data that we're collecting and allow them to give us perspective on some of those problems that we'd like to solve, I think is is incredibly valuable to us. And then this ability to data collect across a population that's representative of having a very standardized process. So they go through an HSS care pathway pre and post operatively. And again, this ability to then look at the data that's collected intraoperatively at the decisions that the surgeon made intraoperatively and then tie that to real functional outcomes is incredibly valuable. Do you see this information being, uh, or some of the feedback, at least from this this agreement, this, the data coming from this agreement, does it help uh, feed your R and D group? Does it help your? Does it go to your engineers to help them refine and, and advance your your offerings? Uh, how will it be used in sort of product development? I think it could potentially do that, but I think the way we view this, Tom, longer term, is this ability to create what we're calling robotic decision support tools. So now this could eventually find its way back into the product where this model, this algorithm that's been developed around this large volume of data collection could eventually in itself become a product. Interesting. 
I mean, that seems to be the really next generation, or it's already, I guess it's the current generation of robotic surgery is the, the data that's collecting. And we've seen other companies really uh, use these systems to not only perform the procedures, but also give surgeons previously un, untapped data sources where they know exactly how things should be positioned. Is that where you are and where you're headed with ZB Edge? It is, Tom. Um, and, and we have this ability. We've been doing this for some time now. So we have a, an actually a very large library of data. We have a, a large repository of data that's already been collected. Um, so it gives us, I, I think, a, a pretty nice head start in the space. Uh, we think it's a really exciting time to be in orthopedics. There will be discovery as a result of this. And I think patients will benefit as a result of it. And is this a, a, an exclusive agreement in, in any way? Are you going to be? Are you hoping to work with other healthcare institutions in a similar way, or where are you going to be focusing your attention for the foreseeable future? I, I could see us doing more uh, arrangements like this globally. I think to to generate significant models that are representative of a global population and to avoid bias in your models. I think you have to do things like this in a global market. We are a global company, so we will have this ability to do like agreements with institutions like this around the world. That, that I think, would be a, a, a next step for us. And the final question, do you see this as sort of following a, a precedent that we might have seen in, in another therapeutic area where these sort of agreements have sort of helped validate and push forward some new technologies? Because we are seeing other surgical robotics companies sort of, it seems like hospitals are more interested in, in agreements like these. They're clearly seeing some value in surgical robotic systems and the data that's collected. Yeah, I, I think the analog process is probably most tightly tied to cardiology, where algorithms like this have been developed for clinical care. I'm not sure if anything like this has been done in the industry, where you have a, a med tech company like Timber Biomet coming together with a large academic medical institution for the purposes of really tackling these big problems and creating insights. So again, we're, I, I keep saying it, but we are really excited about it. I, I think the industry should be excited about it as well. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're uh, eager to, to track your progress and to see what happens next. So, Rob Crawl, thanks for, uh, for joining us uh, on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. Well, let us roll on to number three on the New Markers Newsmakers. Well, you know, number three on the li list is uh, FDA clearing uh, Medtronic's, you know, uh, next generation uh, GI bleeding treatment system, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, next pow powder endoscopic chemostasis system. Um, so it uses a non-contact, non-thermal, and non-traumatic hemostatic powder. And, you know, it sprays through a catheter, features a proprietary powder coating technology, and, you know, to, for, for minimize uh, clogging. So, you know, they're, they're, they're describing this as like a really like innovative uh, system, you know, for, for use in the, uh, in the GI space, you know, just this need to like reduce, you know, the mortality that we can, you know, you can see from upper GI, GI bleeding. And, uh, you know, we, you know, not only did we cover this, but our, our, uh, associator, Sean Hooley interviewed Dr. Austin Chang, who's the uh, CMO of the gastrointestinal business at Medtronic and got even more details about uh, how this, the system works. So I'd encourage you to go to Mass Device, you know, check out the story. 
Yep. Austin Chang is uh, new to Medtronic and is making quite an impact. We had him on the Medtronic Talks podcast a bit ago. And uh, you also, or John in this article quoted, uh, I'm assuming from the release, uh, Gio DiNapoli, who's the president of the gastrointestinal business at Medtronic. And if I didn't mention at the top, he'll also be delivering a keynote address at uh, at Device Talks West. And uh, he's, uh, he's a very really interesting guy, former basketball coach, professional basketball coach in Italy. Oh, wow. Before he came into wow. MedTech, so. And a basketball player, too. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, cool guy. But, all right, what is number two yeah. on the new Marcus Newsmakers? Hey, number two on the uh, the list is we have uh, Johnson & Johnson Vision uh, launching, uh, you, know, you know, some new products, including um, they had an expanded range now uh, for their uh, AccuView ability overnight lenses, uh, which uh, they, they help treat you know, myopia and, and, you know, and children, um, that's more commonly called nearsightedness. Um, but, you know, Johnson, Johnson visual visuals kind of talk about how, you know, it's, uh, it's actually really important to slow the progression of nearsightedness among children, because if you end up developing, you know, severe nearsightedness, um, late in life, you know, you could, that could cause some, you know, serious eye conditions. So, you know, these are like overnight lenses that, you know, can temporarily reduce the refractive error and, you know, along with a professional myo- myopia management plan, they say that these could, you know, eliminate the need for, uh, you know, kids to wear, you know, contacts or glasses when they're, uh, when they're awake, you know, after the removal. So, I mean, that's kind of an exciting product. And, you know, now they've got like, uh, you know, uh, FDA approval for expanded range of, uh, of lenses, you know, so, uh, so yeah, like here, we'll, we'll see, hopefully we'll, uh, you know, we can see how this, uh, this gets, uh, gets deployed, you know, maybe so there'll be some more promising things like if, you know, kids having eyesight problems. Kind so. of like, uh, eye retainers, I imagine, like correcting yeah. things at night while you sleep. Yeah. So parents yeah. would be like, oh, did you, did you wear your ability lens last night? Oh, right. mom. It's like, got to wear that ability, AccuView ability yeah. lens every single night. And Johnson Johnson had some additional news for, older folks like me you had their launch of their intraocular lens yeah exactly they had the uh presbyopia correcting intraocular lens thank yes. you yes i'm luckily not a lot not old enough to worry <laughs> like to know how to pronounce that <laughs> oh you will my friend <laughs> you'll get your your, your progressive like, lenses soon I'm not enough too far behind yeah, you soon enough. yes <laughs> I'm wearing my reading glasses right well, now then you know, know. then you know all the, about presbyopia it's heading on yeah, the way yeah yeah, yeah. So. Intraocular lens. So they got a, you know, that's powered by their IntelliLite technology. Um, you know, so it's uh, this again, like they're saying, it's, it expands the uh, presbyopia uh, correction to more yep. patients. So it's so good news there. I mean, just getting more, uh, you know, these, these treatments getting expanded to, to a wider range of patients. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, ophthalmology has actually uh, been a, uh, you know, there's actually been a lot of interesting news in that space, a lot of innovations, um, getting a lot of attention on mass yeah. device. It's actually really showing itself to be a hot space right now. And and we uh, we actually recently posted, a, Sean posted a roundup of all the stuff we've been covering, like, you know, ophthalmological uh, device right. innovations that's on uh, on mass device. So, so if you want to, if you want to, f- you know, think you might have missed something like uh, check out that roundup, you know, and find out more. Excellent. All right, Chris Newmarker, what is the big number one on Newmarker's Newsmakers? You know, a number one on the list. Uh, we're talking on Friday morning and just, you know, hot, 
hot off the presses. Um, it's probably an old fashioned term now, but like <laughs> fresh, fresh news right here. Like we had, uh, you know, share, you know, Phillips concluded a, uh, you know, what they called an extraordinary meeting of shareholders that uh, approved uh, Roy Jacobs to become, uh, you know, the uh, the Dutch medtech giants, uh, you know, new CEO effective October 15th. Um, but he's uh, facing some challenges. I mean, you know, their previous uh, CEO, he's been there more than 11 years. And uh, I mean, you know, like oversaw, you know, Phillips, uh, you know, carving out all these businesses, divesting them, whatever, really, be, you know, getting out of, you know, you know, like, like moving away from lighting and audio and video and like really focusing as a med tech uh, business, you know, buying Volcano. But, um, you know, Phillips has been, uh, you know, wrestling with this, uh, you know, deadly, uh, you know, CPAPs, uh, Recall. I mean, you got more than a million CPAPs, ventilators, and respiratory devices under uh, you know under recall right now. And uh, you know, the company's supervisory board just said, you know what? It was, after more than eleven years, it was time for a change. And uh, and Jacobs, you know, who's uh, you know been with the company for more than a decade, and you know moved up, became head of the company's connected care business. I mean, he's uh, he's really someone who seems to have a reputation in that company is, is, you know, someone who, you know, uh, comes in and handles mm-hmm. crises. I mean, he was, he was their point person when uh, the COVID pandemic started, you know, they put him in, in charge of the, you know, Phillips Respironics recall, you know, last year, you know, and uh, yeah, they decide he's, he's moving up to become CEO and, you know, and, you know, get the, uh, lead them through these challenges and, you know, hopefully to better thing. It's interesting. The, uh, the fact that he was in, touch, in, in charge of uh, the COVID efforts, it be interesting to see what sort of develops from folks who are put in charge of sort of that crisis management and where they kind of go, how much for, up, further up the ladder they go, if that sort of trial by fire yeah. uh, really eleva- elevates yeah. some executives. Seems, yeah, it definitely seems to uh, for him. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I suspect he's probably really, uh, he has a lot of things he has to manage right now, but uh, hey, we can hopefully, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, things are a little quieter over there. Be, uh, we really need to have him on here and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you know he hopefully can share like some good advice for other executives about, you know, managing through, uh, you know, like uh, some, some challenges. Absolutely. Maybe we'll get him in a future, uh, a future device talks meeting. That'd be fantastic. All right, next, we're going to have our interview with Adam Sachs, CEO and co-founder of Vicarious Surgical. A little bit of a note on this. I mentioned it up top. We actually recorded this during our Device Talks Tuesdays webinar. So it was a live interview. Uh, in, well, all interviews are live, but this one was done with uh, audience members uh, who uh, asked questions. And uh, you can still access the whole presentation if you go to devicetalks.com. Our Device Talks Tuesdays are all available on demand. So you can, uh, if you'd rather watch this, because uh, Adam did have a few slides, you could uh, you could register and watch this instead of listening. But it's really up to you. I think it worked pretty well as a audio interview also. So before we begin this interview with Adam Sachs, I'd like to bring in the last word from our sponsor, Sertronics. I'm visiting with Tom Farron. Tom is Chief Revenue Officer at Sertronics. Tom, looking forward, what are some of the trends and developments that you're seeing that might impact product development and manufacturing in the medical device industry? A couple of things kind of stand out in answer to that question. The first is we are seeing a lot more AI companies that are developing software that helps throughout the industry where results are put up to the cloud. 
and other facilities or physicians can see that and learn from it. So these devices that have this AI embedded in them that are learning and teaching at the same time seems to really be taking off. And secondly, I'd say there's a real crossover between your standard medical device and robotics now. We've been building robotics, things that move and swim and fly now for about a decade. And it's really starting to bleed over into the medical device industry where devices will now have end effectors on them. So as a manufacturer, you've got to be able to have the supply chain locked in place, talk that language, understand how they all go together. You can't just build something that's static. We need to build something that literally actually moves. And the eyes of many systems are called perception boxes. We've been building those for you know half of a decade, a decade or so. So we understand how those fit together, hardware and software. And as a company like ours, you've got to be comfortable. And again, you've got to speak the language and understand how those things are blending together. So big jumps in medical robotics. And as a robotics manufacturer, we are ideally positioned to blend the two. All right. Well, thanks for those thoughts, Tom. And once again, if you'd like to find out more about Sertronics, go to its website, sertronics.com. That's C-I-R-T-R-O-N-I-C-S dot com. Thanks, Sertronics, for supporting the Device Talks weekly podcast. Thank you for, for being part of this. As I mentioned up top, I'm sorry, I can't see you, so I'm completely off my game. This was a, sort of an idea that came to mind with something we've been wanting to do, and I, and I tossed it over to you, and you were completely game, didn't need any arm twisting at all. So I'm, I'm really grateful for you uh, to take the time to do this. You know what? I uh, love doing new things. So let's uh, try it out and see what happens. Fantastic. Thank you for thinking of me and having us. So yeah, I, uh, a bit of background, Great. by the way, about myself. I, I said I'd keep this to just a couple of minutes, so let's see if I can do that. I'm uh, the founding CEO of Vicarious Surgical. I'm an engineer by background, so I, I went to MIT. It's uh, very much the startup story that you've heard many times before. This company started with uh, my college roommate, Sammy Khalifa, and uh, a family friend, Dr. Barry Green. And we, we started working on this full-time uh, about eight years ago at this point. And really, the entire goal has been to tackle uh, a long-standing set of problems that's existed in surgery. So I'll, I'll cover this at a pretty high level. There's more info on our website and, and, uh, happy to dig in deeper with in, in the Q and A as well. Uh, uh, if anybody has any questions about the, the background or the history, but what this really comes down to is solving the challenges of open surgical procedures, uh, and enabling people to move past the large incisions that are still used in over 50% of surgical cases. So, uh, the, the, you know, way that most people get around uh, open surgery is with multi-port minimally invasive surgery. You make multiple small incisions, triangulate from those incisions to one point inside of the abdomen, and you're able to operate. But the real challenge is that it pushes all the kinematic challenges uh, uh, and all of really the complications from the patient over to the surgeon. So the, the surgeon now has to create a robotic or a motion profile for every procedure based on where they put the incisions and where they want to operate inside of the patient. And if, if you imagine triangulating from those multiple incisions to a single point inside of the abdominal cavity, if you choose the incision point incorrectly, you're stuck with very limited operating capability. And multi-quadrant surgery often requires resetup, redocking, 
additional incisions um, and, and an entirely different approach. So all of this creates a surprisingly significant learning curve for surgeons and entire care teams building out uh, robotics programs with today's technologies and ultimately uh, uh, present a significant barrier to adoption of minimally invasive technique uh, overall. So we're not the only ones who have seen this challenge. I think the answer is it's relatively obvious. It's to go into a single incision so that you're no longer triangulating across the abdominal wall. You get past the abdominal wall. But all the existing single port technologies to date, they're all built on flexible robotic technology, which is just far too weak for most procedures. And in order to even generate the forces that they need to do most procedures, end up with two and a half centimeter incisions. So when we started this company, we pretty quickly decided that you know we needed to do rigid robotics. We needed to remove the coupled motion in each of between each of the joints because there is a form of coupled motion that essentially leads to uh force buildup from joint to joint with all the existing robotics technologies we've invented and perfected a way to fully decouple all of that so that we can have these nine degrees of freedom inside of the body and the, the last thing that I'll, I'll touch on is what those joints actually make up because i'm particularly proud of the insight of, of the nine degrees of freedom. So if you think about existing surgical robots, they are essentially six degrees of freedom plus an end effector. It's actually true even beyond surgical robots. So it's XYZ plus yaw pitch roll gives you full position and orientation control. But the, the amazing thing, if you imagine, you know, an existing surgical robot, I don't know if you can see my video, but you know, it gives you full position and orientation control, but it doesn't give you control of how you get to that end effector location, which is why the incisions matter so much because you end up with all these collisions. And part of what makes humans so dexterous is our extra redundant degrees of freedom. The fact that we can move our elbow up and down while keeping our hand in place, that we can reach around things. We've replicated all of this with superhuman flexibility so that the, the surgeon can not only go in and work straight forward, but we're designing our system so that the surgeon can work all the way back around the incision site. Truly, you know, it's, it's aimed to give the surgeon complete access to the entire abdomen through one small incision. The one other thing that, that I'll touch here is on some of the, the agreements that you were mentioning and the, the relationships we've built out with hospitals. I, I'm incredibly proud of some of the relationships that we built out with, uh, University hospitals, as well as HCA Healthcare. These are two very large hospital chains with uh, large adopters of surgical robots and a total of two, over 200 combined hospitals. And th these are, are really deep relationships across multiple levels, starting with product development today. We're working in order to make sure that our product meets these hospital system needs and the needs of, of hospitals, surgeons, patients, and payers across the world then go through verification and validation, clinical trials and evaluation, and of course, training when we're on marketing commercial. So I'll stop there and uh, let everybody dig in. I want to talk a bit about the technology and you were sort of, you were explaining the nine degrees of freedom that your, your system provides. What sort of engineering goes into designing those, that sort of instrument? What sort of disciplines did you have to bring into the creation of the vicarious uh, system and, and and why is it so different than than other approaches 
Yeah. So uh, I'll start with the fact that I'm incredibly biased uh, and that <laughs> I'm a mechanical be. engineer. I am, I am very much a mechanical engineer. And I'm going to say that I think all of robotics needs to start with mechanical engineering. So, you know, if, if we look at, again, the coupled motion problem specifically is it's a problem where all the joints are linked together. So if you move one joint, all the distal joints also move. And other robotics companies have solved that in software, which it works, but it doesn't remove that exponential force buildup, which doesn't, you know, enable you to have all these joints inside of the body. So mm-hmm. we, we really started from a mechanical engineering perspective, fix it in hardware, not fix it. The, the saying that everybody uses, like, fix, we'll fix it in software. Uh, and the answer is no, we're going to fix it in hardware. Then you layer in a ton of electrical engineering the sensors throughout our arms, the cameras themselves bring in a a tremendous amount of technology that's taken, frankly, electrical engineering feats from outside of our company, primarily from the cell phone industry, and brought those in through a tremendous amount of work on our side. And then, uh, of course, software comes next. So the entire system runs software all the way from embedded software, literally run on microcontrollers in the robotic arms, to compute the position, to crunch the video, all the way out through high-level software that runs on a computer and executes the full motion and kinematics of the entire robot together. So I'd say those are the core three disciplines, but Mm -hmm. wrapped around that, there's there's so much more. The systems engineering, ensuring that the entire design works together. We have an integration engineering group that actually brings all of these pieces together. We have a you know, data advanced sensing and artificial intelligence group that's working on a lot of the next generation stuff, leveraging these incredible sensors that we have. Uh, we have a clinical engineering group because we're not just building a robotic system that needs to be safe and, and uh, deliver amazing results. It actually needs to fit within the clinical environment and work well with the care team. So it's every piece of this all needs to come together. And uh, it's a pretty uh, amazing feat. That's great. And, and let's go. I'm going to actually go to a question we have from, uh, from Duke already. So it's, he says the arms of your device are impressive and complex with the joints and sensors. In your past presentations, they were to be disposable. If so, can you give insight into cost per case and complexity of manufacturing? Are they just, are your arms disposable or are they reusable? I mean, that kind of brings you to a whole other single use versus reusable implant conversation. But will your arms be reusable? Or are they single use? So uh, we are designing our system to be entirely single use. I will mm-hmm. say they they are reusable and we reuse them internally. We're, you know, we're due to the decoupled nature of the actuators, we're able to use a lot lower cost components overall. So because we no longer have this exponential buildup of forces, we're moving from steel cables to polymer cables that are relatively low cost to a significant number of polymer components and 3D printed components throughout the arms. You know, I, I will say this, this business model is, it, it's going to work with the current price points and even somewhat lower price points with robotic surgery per case today. But that being said, you know, we're well aware that there's a lot of competition entering the market and there is some incentive to drive those price points down significantly. If mm-hmm. they are driven down significantly, we may need to shift over to a reposable model. Uh, I'll say I'm you know, confident that that'll work because it's actually what we do internally today. We do not throw our arms away. You know, after every internal procedure, um, we reuse them significantly just because it, it saves time and effort rather than having the expense of building new sets of arms every time 
that's the consumable side. If I can also touch on the capital equipment side, I think that this is, is a pretty incredible opportunity for us as well, because our capital equipment is no longer for gigantic robotic arms. If you think about robotic arms of existing surgical robots that pivot about the trocar, they need to generate these huge, rapid, accurate swinging motions that pivot across the incision and then make tiny motions inside of the patient. We have none of that. The system outside is a support structure. We actually internally call, call it the ro robot support system. Uh, and it, it literally holds up the robot. A our CapEx cost of goods is about you know 5 to 10x lower than what exists on the market today. So let's talk a bit about the size of the of the robot uh, in terms of, and, and how do you go about competing for space in the surgical suite? Do you have to get smaller to, to get it into those rooms or is the size less of an issue as it, as it might appear from to an outsider? But how big is your system and, and how are you competing in, how do you hope to compete in getting uh, some some floor space in the surgical suite? Yeah, I think it's a, a really good question. and. The answer, like many things in medical devices and surgical robotics, is multifaceted. So I think it's it's actually not space is, is an important aspect, as is, is of course, total cost and the budget that you're taking up, or I, I should really say total value that, that you're delivering, uh, total training time. You know, all of these pieces go, go together in, in terms of you know, actually competing within the OR setting. Mm -hmm. And... You know, if, if you look at a, a device, I think it really comes down to how often it's used. There are lots of devices in an operating room, which both make space relatively scarce and relatively cramped. But at the same time, I think is good evidence that hospitals and surgeons will buy and use devices that provide significant value to them. So if you look at, you know, existing surgical robots or, or simply look at our first indication of ventral hernia. There are a good number of hospitals and a good number of operating rooms that do enough ventral hernia cases to, to justify the, the purchase and use of a robot. But that number is still relatively small. And there's mm -hmm. a reason that we're coming out with indication after indication and, and tool after tool, all within about a year of our initial launch, because it is going to be incredibly important as we tackle that at competing for space, for mindshare, for training. For, for everything and all of the resources, you know, in the hospital setting, and then aim to, to really take that and deliver it back in terms of value to the, the patients and hospitals and surgeons, we're, we're going to need to have a, a more, more holistic offering longer term. So that really is sort of our short term approach is focus on hospitals and, and OR settings that can use our device heavily within hernia repair in the beginning and then quickly expand outside of that. What does that pace look like? If you if you think you'll have hernia one year and then another indication the next, or is it longer than that? Or how would you like uh, to see that unfold? We're, we're targeting significantly shorter than that. Okay. Uh, we're, we're targeting a, a cadence of a number of additional indications within the first year. Excellent. And I, I want to uh, talk a bit about your centers of excellence uh, news in a minute, but we do have a question from uh, from someone in the audience. Han asks, what does the UI look like to control the position orientation approach direction? Is there some kind of haptic control going up the arm of the surgeon? All right. So two interesting and, and relatively distinct questions. So I'm going to split those a little bit and talk about the haptics first. So the haptics is a really interesting question. And I think that the real question with haptics is, is what is the value of haptics? Nobody has ever really done haptics in soft tissue surgical robot to date. 
And I think that there is a handful of reasons for that. First, that the sensing is actually very hard. Generating the forces to the surgeon is pretty easy. There's actually some off-the-shelf tools that, that can do that. But measuring six degrees of freedom of force is really hard. And that's a problem that, that we have solved with the sensing in our arms. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. Now, the, the question is, though, what is the value that haptics delivers to the surgeon? Because if they can feel everything that they do, you know, what I'll tell you from, from, from our own internal testing is that it is the coolest thing in the world. I mean, it, it feels incredible. But at the same time, you've actually lost a decent amount of the value that, that you're delivering and that the surgeon now needs to go back to exerting forces, to, to using physical energy. The procedures become tiring again. So really, what surgeons want from, from at least all of our, our conversations and observations is what, what they want is to avoid injuring the patient, to put the right amount of tension on the suture, to, mm-hmm. to you know, to do everything, to avoid breaking sutures by accident, actually a, a really big issue in, in robotic cases today. And we can deliver all of that without actually having the surgeon feel everything that they're doing. And that, that's something that I'm really excited about, requires the sensing, and requires the force measurement, but then letting surgeons set limits and letting them set controls and warning them or maybe even letting them feel when they're going above a certain force limit that they, that they can set. And all of that delivers the, the value of haptics without the downsides that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So what the UI looks like and how they move around, I don't want to go too far into this for two reasons. One, honestly, it's just really hard to explain. But two is, is that I'm not positive how much is, is covered with existing IP. I just don't, don't want to accidentally cross that line. But, you know, what, what I'll say at a high level is that it feels like you pull yourself around the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, it, you know, it's as if you can kind of grab on and, and pull yourself towards something, grab up and rotate yourself back all while you're sitting comfortably facing straight forward. There is actually a lot beyond that that's incredibly cool that I, I can't wait to show off and I will be showing off in a demo of our technology around the end of this year. And, and I remember from an earlier conversation, was there a VR component as well? And is that going to be included in your first generation or is that coming further down the line? The VR will be coming a little bit further down the line. It's something that we're really excited about. It's the coolest thing in the world. And during all of our beta one testing, one of the things that we really quickly learned with the user interface is that it's just, frankly, VR headsets are not quite there. It offers additional risks and it's not worth it at our immediate initial launch. So our system is VR capable the experience, it actually was the main way of operating with our system for a very long time. And it really does make you feel like you're inside of the body. But we can provide so much value and so much capability that surgeons don't have today, mm-hmm. all with the primarily with the business end of our robot. And we, we don't have any additional risk of holding up uh, the, the launch of our system in order to, to put VR in. So it'll be an add-on after additional launch. Right. And Miranda asked, does the main trocar include an accessory port to pass suture mesh? All right. So, <laughs> also, <this is> <laughs> if, this is too, if we're going too granular, just say so. No, 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 no. no. I, I, as long as you don't mind my tangents. So, uh, <laughs> I don't uh, think they do. So, well, I'll start by answering the question. The, the, the question is actually, it's if you look at the videos online of how our system is inserted, so the, those decoupled rotational actuators allow us to no longer generate rotational motion by pivoting through the trocar, which is the way pretty much everybody else 
generates rotational motion, we have actual rotational actuators inside of the patient. And what, what that's designed to enable us to do is, is to put an arm in, move it out of the way, put an arm in, move it out of the way. And that leaves most of the trocar patent for you to pass things through. So you start out by having a very large trocar if you want to use a particularly large mesh that you could pass things through without, uh, you could remove an arm and pass something huge into, or you have up to about eight millimeters in our trocar even when the device is fully inserted. So you can actually put most meshes through that. Now, I, I'll say that the tangent here, though, is that the real question <laughs> is why single port? Because there's been a huge push of notes and, and natural orifice surgery and, and single port surgery because of this, this idea that it's better for the patient. And I think it is better for the patient. That's why we all do what we do. But it's better for the patient because it provides better operating capability for the surgeon, or at least it can in theory. It never has to date. And that's why we're doing single port, because it enables us to get past the abdominal wall and it enables us to design our device in a way that, that provides the surgeon this incredible capability. So that is all to say that while the surgeon can put the mesh in through the primary trocar, they can also just put another trocar in and do that as well. And I don't have any significant objection to that e either way. It's between the surgeon and the patient. Let's talk a bit about your uh, your center's center of excellence agreement. You referenced that in the in the presentation uh, at the start, but uh, I, I remember reading the release and it just came out recently and thinking that oh geez, I didn't know that that a company your stage without a product on market would have this sort of relationship. Talk first about the relationships, what they are, what they provide for you in the hospitals, but then I'd love to understand uh, how these came together. Yeah, so uh, it started with actually some some outreach from hospitals to us mm -hmm. and uh which is is something that i i'm really proud of and th these are these are top level engagements at at major u.s hospital chains including you know the largest in the u.s and i mean you're absolutely right it, it's something that just hasn't existed to date and i'm most proud of because it it really means that the, these hospital chains are devoting a huge amount of time and energy into helping us deliver on our mission in order to provide them a product that lets them, frankly, deliver on their mission to provide good care to their patients. I, mm -hmm. I, I'll say as a slight aside here, I, I, I've been incredibly inspired by, by both of these hospital chains and how much everything they do ties back to helping their surgeons and entire care teams deliver better care to their patients. And at, at the end of the day, that, that's what this is all about for us. So it's about going through We've created working groups uh, across every discipline that, that, you know, we can think of here to make sure that, you know, everything in, in the clinical operations, the supply chain management, the care team management, every piece of this is set up in a way that will allow for the most streamlined and, and rapid adoption of our technology in their systems and systems across the world. Then taking it through verification and validation, clinical evaluation and clinical trial setting, and then on-market training as well. And, you know, it's our explicit goal to deliver these hospitals and through these agreements to deliver hospitals across the world exactly what they're asking for and exactly what they need so that they can rapidly adopt it and set that up way in advance. Uh, and the last thing that I, I will say is it also, uh, in the case of one, one of these, included a significant financial investment from the hospital. 
Hmm. What do the exchanges look like between your engineers and the hospitals? Are they sending people to Waltham, Massachusetts? Are you sending people to hospitals to kind of learn from each other? What is, what is the uh, exchange like between the two? Yeah. Um, actually, and if I, I can just correct, I, the, the investment sure. actually came first and then the agreements, which I'm, uh, I'm incredibly proud of there. Uh, okay. but the, the answer is both. The answer is absolutely mm-hmm. both. Uh, we go to, you know, their facilities, observe cases, talk to their care team members, uh, have working groups both at their site and, and at sites and ours as well and ha- have their teams, you know, come out try our technology, do cadaver procedures, give us the feedback that we need. And their surgeons are, make up, you know, a, a decent portion of our surgeon luminary group as well. That's really core to providing the feedback that, that, that we need going from, you know, initial technology to beta one, beta one to beta two, and then and to the clinical trial units. So, and, and folks, we're going to be wrapping up in probably a few minutes. So, uh, I'll, I'll ask a couple more questions that I have. But if you have any quick ones you want to get in there, please do uh, do pass them along. We talked a bit about the FDA. Where are you in that timeline? I think when we talked last year's last year, you were in year seven of a nine year journey to get a device to market. I don't know. Are we in year eight now, or, or is it still a nine year journey? Is it a ten year journey? One never really knows when dealing with regulatory bodies. Yeah, I, I think the big you know, thing that's come up in between that the last time that we talked, at least from my memory and now is, is needing to do clinical trials. Yeah. So, you know, the FDA and I actually, uh, uh, even Gary, uh, I think was talking about this on, uh, on their earning, on their last earnings call, uh, is that, that, you know, acro- across the industry, the, the FDA is, is a- adding significant requirements, mm-hmm. uh, including requirements for clinical data. Uh, I think it's, there are pluses and minuses to all of this, but at the end of the day, what it means is that We'll end up doing a relatively small clinical trial going through. So, so the answer to the question about timeline is around the end of next year, we'll be filing for uh, an IDE in order to do our clinical trial. We'll conduct the trial. I'd say the trial itself is probably a four month clinical trial, but mm-hmm. you know, I think most people on this podcast are well aware <laughs> that to do a four month clinical trial is probably wrap, wrap a total of nine to 12 months around it. And you're, you're probably at the, the complete timeline, uh, there. So, you know, uh, ID toward the end of next year and then, uh, de novo filing, uh, the, the year following. Someone's asking if you have, uh, any eye toward the EU. Yeah, it's, that's a good question. Uh, I'd say we, we haven't shared publicly exactly what outside the U.S. markets will be targeting. There are a number of really interesting OUS markets for surgical robotics. The EU was higher up on the list under MDD than it is under MDR is kind of the biggest piece that I'll say. So like, yes, long term, of course, we don't want to restrict our, our technology to just the, the U.S., but it's not a coincidence that we've significantly partnered with with folks in Asia in the past. I think a lot of the combination of uh, ability to, fr- frankly, of ability to charge for, for medical devices compared to the additional regulatory burdens beyond FDA clearance, uh, make a lot more sense for a company of our stage than EU under MDR. Someone's asking if you if you think uh, the development to market timeline for robotic tech will shorten in the foreseeable future, given uh, that technology such as digital twins mature. So I guess as we're able to, or I guess virtually test things through digital means, the hurdle's getting a little lower for future companies or for you in the future. I think that, the answer is maybe somewhat, maybe. but not not a huge amount. 
it hasn't really been what we've seen in the past. The, you know, it's uh, say an eight to 10 year journey for most companies that we've seen, including ourselves. And, you know, it's a good question. Like, how does technology end up coming in and, and then not accelerate the time to market? But if you look at the total complexity of the system, there's so many pieces that go together that, you know, our ability to bring in and leverage additional existing technologies, what, what it certainly has done is lowered the total cost to bring a device like ours to market. But the number of builds and iterations, I think, has remained relatively constant. Fantastic. And my final question for you, and if anyone hops on with the, uh, another question, I'll see if I can get it in. But you're a public company now. You went public via a SPAC. How, how has that been for you? I mean, it, you're, you're running a, a very uh, company that's really advancing technology that's bringing an innovative system online, and you're doing it in, in the glaring eyes of the public markets. What has that process been like? Sure, it brings you capital, which you obviously need, but uh, it brings a lot of complexity as well. Yeah, I, I'd say uh, it's been almost all excellent. Uh, obviously, the public <laughs> markets are a little bit crazy recently. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's brought the capital we need, but also brought, frankly, an ability to have conversations like this, which as a growing company that's hiring, you know, hiring like crazy, bringing on on people and partnerships across the industry. I'm not sure these partnerships with HCA and UH would have happened if we weren't a public company and didn't have the level of transparency to the world that comes with being a public company. Our ability to grow and, and frankly, the, you know, the capital and the fuel that funds all of that also comes out of being a public company. So, you know, I'll say it's not without its downsides and not without its distractions, <laughs> but most of it is extremely positive. Excellent. And the final question, uh, someone just asked if you're related to MIT prof Emmanuel Sachs. Yeah. The answer <laughs> is yes. Uh, Ellie Sachs is my dad. Excellent. All right. That wraps up our conversation. I know we need to go. I think this has been a lot of fun. I hope it's something we can build on and have you back when you have more news to report. Thanks for taking the time, Adam. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Uh, really excited to do this. All right, Chris Newmarker. Now is the time where we plead for social media social media followers. We've got to like, follow, subscribe. That's right. Well, actually, let's talk about ourselves first. Where can folks find yeah, you on yes. social media, Chris? You know, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Chris Newmarker. I am, you know, I'm just 100 below 5,000 connections. So if everybody listening to this podcast could just connect with me right now, I can, you know, help me make my, help me get over nice. 5,000. That's great. Wow. You're closing in. I got I to gotta step up my game. Closing son. in. All right. And uh, you're on Twitter at Newmarker. I am on Twitter at yeah. MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And if you connect with Chris, make sure you connect with me so he stays the same distance behind me in terms of followers on LinkedIn. Cause yeah, don't let Tom I'm fall small behind. I'm small and competitive that way. Yes. Come on. Yeah, no, I'm definitely. Yes. Don't want to. <laughs> uh, or if you want to leave Tom in the dust. I mean, you know, I mean, sorry, oh, Tom. You know, I thought we were pals, Chris. How dare you? How dare you? Anyway, what, what can folks do with this fancy podcast of ours? Like, follow, subscribe. That is right. Like, follow, and or subscribe. And this podcast, future episodes of this podcast, rather, will be sent directly to you in addition to Intuitive Talks and Striker Talks. And you can also like, follow, and or subscribe to Medtronic Talks. And episodes of that podcast series will be sent directly to your listening device 
it just just yeah. it just makes so much sense. So just there's really no question. There's no reason not to do it. Just save yourself some effort. Let the like meta knowledge flow into your ears. <laughs> exactly. You will just get smarter through osmosis. Yes. Your phone will be just just sending waves of med tech information your way. So, all right. Hopefully not. Well, hopefully again, you don't catch our goofiness. Just, you know, the knowledge, <laughs> the knowledge. No. Our coolness. No, Are they going to become cool like us? Ah, that is hard to pull uh, off. Yes, being cool like right. Tom and Chris. Exactly, yeah, we, yeah. we have not figured it out yet. Uh, but you can try to be cool like us and be at Device Talks West, right. you know, which is happening on October 19th and 20th. Uh, that is at the Santa Clara Convention Center. We'll have great representation from uh, Boss Scientific, Abbott, Medtronic, as we've mentioned, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Outset. Uh, there's more and more and more number shockwaves. So we'll go to devicetalks.com, find the agenda, check it out, and please do register. And uh, make sure right. you use the code DTWEEKLY25. Oh. And that'll save you 25%. There you go. But if you do reach out to Chris and I, just say, hey, I heard something you know. about a code yeah. and uh, maybe we'll hook you up. Yeah. We take care of our yeah. friends. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly podcast. Tune in. Yes. Next week. And we'll have another great episode of this podcast sent directly to you. Hey, enjoy the, enjoy the fall. Enjoy the football. Enjoy the football.